Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. So this morning we have five different readings, and they're from the New International Version, starting with Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The next reading is from Mark 12, verse 28 to 33 the greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now we're reading from Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, thanks, Helen. And really, it is very good to be back with you again. It was lovely being in the UK, a fantastic time. But the more you're there, the more you realize how privileged we are here in Australia. Oh, it's so lovely just to have some space again. Um, Spurgeon was very good to us. They gave us this one-bedroom flat. uh, And I think by UK standards, it was smallish but fine. By Australian standards, it was a matchbox. Uh, and uh, we were up in the top floor, so it would, like had these eaves that were going across, and the, the little table they had, dining table, uh, was there. And you had to actually stand up quite carefully when you stood up. In fact, you couldn't just stand up and, Peter, I don't know what you would have done. You would have been absolutely lost, my friend. Uh, but... Uh, Kind of as you stood up, you had to make sure that you stepped to the side so that you were in a more spacious space. Uh, and on three occasions, I'm a slow learner, on three occasions I forgot to do that and kind of cracked my head. Two of them that drew blood, uh, so it was really quite dramatic. Um, but 
Yeah, we, we, we are privileged in just so many ways, so many, many ways. Uh, lovely to be there, so much going on, but uh, home is home and really good to be back here again. Hey, today we're starting a series on reading the Bible and reading the Bible well. And I've been given probably the, the toughest part of, of the series, uh, which is on hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is about, so how do you actually interpret the Bible? How do you know what it's saying? How can you be sure that, that, that as you read it, you know what it's about? And it's an important topic because uh, sometimes people read the Bible really, really badly. I mean, if you are interested in history, and I realize that many people are not, but if you are interested in history, uh, you might be aware that in 1543, Nicholas Copernicus put out his book on the revolutions of the heavenly bodies. And in that book, Copernicus put forward what at the time seemed like an outrageous proposition, that the earth moved and that it moved and revolved around the sun. And fortunately for Copernicus, he died shortly after he put out the book because it caused no small stir. And uh, the church made it very clear that it was very unhappy with what this book had taught. And Galileo Galileo in the 1630s uh, took the ideas a bit further, and he wasn't as fortunate as Copernicus to die quite so quickly. And uh, he was accused of heresy, placed under house arrest, and treated really appallingly badly by the church because he had suggested that the earth revolves around the sun, an idea which we now know to be absolutely true and valid, and no one really disputes that, 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 that at all. And as you hear a story like that, you, you've got to scratch your head and you say, so what was that about? I mean, it's not as though the Christian faith depends upon whether the earth does or does not revolve around the sun. It means it's actually got very little to do with the Christian faith, actually. So, so why is the church so incensed about that? Why, why was it accusing these men of heresy and doing terrible things to them? And the answer is actually quite simply that if you had asked one of the church leaders in, in the day, they would have quoted back to you Psalm 104 verse 5. And they would have said, don't you know, the psalmist tells us the earth is set on a sure foundation, it will not be moved. And here these men are, and they're suggesting that the earth is moving the whole time. When the Bible has told us that the earth is set on a sure foundation and will not be moved. And, and really, with our 21st century knowledge, we look at that and we say, oh, come on. Get a life. Don't you have a bit more imagination? Don't you understand that Psalms is a book of poetry? That, 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 that actually the poet is actually saying something very profound, that the earth is secured by the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's really all that the psalmist is saying. He's not trying to say how the earth is locked in somewhere. He's saying that God looks over the world. You know, interpret this a little bit better. And of course, we say that today, but the reality is that it sometimes has been interpreted very badly, and sometimes people have done terrible things because of that. 1 Samuel 15 gives the account of Saul being told to slay the Amalekites and to kill them completely, to kill all their children, to kill all their babies, to kill all their livestock. And Saul disobeys and comes under the judgment of God. That passage, which is about a very specific, very unique, very unusual circumstance, that passage has been used time and time and time again in history to justify genocide, quite recently in the Rwandan War. Uh, sadly, there is an account after account of, of Hutu preachers who, who told their congregations and preached from 1 Samuel 15, saying to them, 
Saul fell under the judgment of God because he did not completely kill the Amalekites. If you do not completely kill the Tutsus, then you will be under the judgment of God. And their congregations obeyed all too readily. And a terrible genocide took place in that absolutely appalling civil war. And you look at that and you say, oh my goodness, the Bible can be a dangerous book. The Bible can be used in all kinds of ways. It can be used to try to clamp down on science. It can be used to justify genocide. I mean, why do we bother with the Bible at all? And and the answer is, of course, well, well, hold on. That's such a one-sided part of the story. I mean, when you read the Bible well, you discover that it is indeed an absolutely miraculous and an amazing book. I, I mean, if you just... I don't know how much you know about the Bible and how much you know about its composition, but it is by any, any account a truly remarkable book. It has for centuries been the world's bestseller. And, and you may say that you know, just quickly, but ask yourself, why? And think, isn't that strange? I mean, let's remember, the Bible was written by probably about 40 different people. So if you look at its 66 books, there, there are probably about 40 different people who authored various of those books. That took place in a period of about 1,600 years. So, so this is a book that was 1,600 years in the writing. And that writing finished about 1,900 years ago, roughly 100 uh, A.D., And so here you've got a book written by about 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years and a book that's 1,900 years old, and it keeps on being the world's bestseller. And you say, that's that's strange. That's remarkable. I mean, have you tried to read books that were written even three or 400 years ago? Have you tried to make sense of them? And and, and as you read them, you usually think, oh, this is really hard going. And and you think sometimes at best that that it's quaint. But, But imagine a book that's written by 40 different people over 1,600 years, and somehow it continues to speak to issues like love and justice and family life and our deepest longings and questions of eternity, and speak to it in a way that it still captures the hearts of people and remains a bestseller. That's astonishing, just astonishing. And we do, of course, believe as Christian people, we believe that that's because this book is God-given, God-breathed, given to us. And, 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 and if you're a believer, you would know, of course, that this is the only place where we can be sure about the things that we say about God. Because without the Bible, how do we know? If, if, if God had not revealed himself, shown what, what, what God is like, we would be constantly just guessing. But the Bible is this amazing collection of God-turned-up events, events which humanity have recognized that as they unfolded, that somehow God was in the midst of them. And as they recognized the fingerprints of God and the activities which were taking place, people wrote them down. And there were many events which were written down, but, but these are the ones that remained and somehow through the course of history have held on and God has said, this is your gift. If you've got this book, you can read it and you can know something about the kind of God that, 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 that I am. And so the Bible is a remarkable book and uh, we do need to ask, so how do we read it well? And we need to recognize that though I started out with some negative stories, stories about clamping down on science, stories of genocide, that, that actually there is quite a different story that can be told about the Bible. And that is about the radical force for good that it has been in human history. So, so you take a passage like the first one, which Helen read to us, Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. 
uh, this passage which speaks about humanity being made in the image of God. And, and in those, this, the opening chapter of the Bible, we're told that as God makes people, he makes men and women in God's own image. It is difficult to overestimate the significance and the impact that that passage has had. Because that passage which says every single person, every single person, every single person has been made in the image of God has slowly filtered down into human consciousness. And it's taken us a long time to grasp it. But if you ask the question, why is it that Christians were at the forefront and were ultimately responsible for for major strides towards the abolition of slavery? If you ask that question, the answer is because they realized every human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, slavery is completely inappropriate. Or if you ask why it is that, that Christians were at the forefront for the emancipation of women. And you say, well, it's because they realized that God made men and women in the image of God. And therefore, every person is, is of absolute significance to God. If you ask why Christians were at the forefront of rights and protections for children. It is because they recognized that every single person is made in the image of God. If you say, why was it the Christians championed the welfare state? It's because of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which tells us that every single human being has worth and dignity. And therefore, when people are vulnerable, you need to look out for them and you need to care for them. And that's exactly why Christians championed the welfare state, that every single person would be protected because everyone is made in the image of God. It is why Christians have been at the forefront of of preserving the rights of people with disabilities because they have said, it doesn't matter if some parts of you do not work. You are still a Medjodeo. And that's what the Bible teaches us. So, so, so you see, you, you, you take just those three verses and you say they have transformed human history. Because actually they are enormously significant. Theologian Helmut Thalika says that they, they, they confirm to us that humanity has what we could call an alien dignity an alien dignity. Because when we are taught that we are made in the image of God, we're being told that God comes and he confers a dignity upon us and says, because you are human, you somehow reflect something of what I am like to the universe. And that dignity is, is given to you from beyond. It is alien to you. It comes to you. And you matter because it has been given to you. Now, now let's understand this very carefully. Dignity can be seen as coming in one of two ways. You can say, as secular people very often would do, and sometimes sadly Christian people do, but that's because they're, they're not thinking in a Christian manner. You can say, I value you because you are so intelligent. I value you because you are so good looking. I value you because you're so good at sport. I value you because you are so sharp at business. I value you because of your connections. I value you because of your wealth. I value, and we can give all kinds of reasons why we value some, someone. And when we say that, we're saying we self-earn our dignity. We have dignity because somehow we have done certain things. But the problem with that is what happens when we are not able to do those things? What happens for those people who are not able 
to be wonderfully intelligent? What happens to those people who are not wonderfully strong? What happens on the day that you have a stroke? Do you lose all your dignity then? Well, if that's where it comes from, from what you do, yes, you do. But Christians have always said, no, hold on. You never treat people like that because we are a Magodeo. We're always this mysterium. We are given dignity because God has placed God's own hand on us, and therefore we matter. You see, this is, this is the way we think. It's the way we approach the world. It impacts everything. This book has shaped country after country. And you can look at the map of the world today, and you can look at those countries which have most been impacted by the Christian message, and you see that, with only a very few exceptions, those are the countries that basically, when it comes to human rights, human dignity, are just country miles ahead of others. And you realize this book has transformed transformed the world for the good. And though sometimes it has been poorly interpreted and you have terrible things like genocide being justified in the name of God, there is a much bigger story that must be told. And that is the story of the transformation of the world for the good. Okay, so you say, well, thanks, that's, that's nice to know that. But you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm just an individual believer. How, how do I go about reading the Bible well? How can I make sure that I'm reading the Bible well? And if you have studied at Vos, and I hope that some of you will study at Vos one day, or if you know something about biblical studies, you would know that that little word, word hermeneutics is not far off. Hermeneutics, just, just the science of, of interpretation. And, and there are just basic principles which we should, should, should remember when we read the Bible. And they're fairly simple principles, and I can't possibly go through them all today. It's a, it's a, it's a science all on its own. But they are simple things. So, so when you read the Bible... And we read any particular book of the Bible, and remember it does have different authors, as, and each of them have their own particular style. When, when, when you read a particular book of the Bible, the first question you always ask is, so why did, the, why did this person write this book? What was their intention in writing it? What were they trying to convey? What were they trying to say? And, and how would the original readers have understood this? And, and what was the cultural context against which it was being written? Because when I understand this, then I, then I at least get to the heart of what the book was about. And when I get to the heart of what the book was about, I realize that I am reading this now usually several thousand years after the book was written. And as it's several thousand years later, I need to be aware of, okay, that was the intent. That's how the original people would have heard it. That's the cultural context in which they would have heard it. Now, there are a lot of differences between today. So how do I make sure that the essential message is is translated accurately into a 21st century context? And I can only do that if I start to get some kind of a sense of what the original author meant. There are other principles. Need to interpret the, the, the part in the light of the whole. So some people, and maybe you sometimes, read the Bible devotionally. And you might almost have a little system of, of having like promise boxes where you pull out a verse of scripture and see what God is saying to you today. And, and listen, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with doing that because I think sometimes God uses a particular verse of scripture and speaks to us in a very penetrating way. But you will not get to understand the whole message of the Bible in that way. To understand the message of the Bible, you need to read books as a whole. And you need to, in fact, realize that, in fact, when you read little parts, you need to say, how does this link up with the whole? And how does this whole fit together? 
And so linked to that, you get another related principle, that we should always interpret the obscure in the light of the clear. We should interpret the obscure in the light of the clear. So sometimes as people read through the Bible, they, they, they find a particular verse and they say, oh my goodness, I have no idea what that means. And always you interpret it and say, okay, well, that might be very difficult, but what isn't difficult? Because we can be very sure about what isn't difficult and what is obvious, and what is obvious helps us to give, get the right sense of what, what isn't so obvious is. So, for example, verse I was asked about just recently, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, talks about baptism on behalf of the dead. You read that and you say, oh, Paul's talking about baptisms on behalf of the dead. Does that mean, I mean, I always thought that people had to make a commitment to Jesus during their lifetime. But this says that you can be baptized on behalf of the dead. So are the Mormons right? Can you, in fact, kind of just uh, you know, go back and be baptized for your relatives because 1 Corinthians 15, 29 talks about baptisms for the dead? No, 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 no. Uh, we, we interpret the obscure in the light of the clear. And the very clear is that people need to respond individually to Jesus, to commit themselves to Jesus, uh, that it's given to us that, that we live once and then we die, and after that comes the judgment. I mean, these things are very clear. And so we dig a little bit more into the background and we say, well, so what is this passage about? Well, this is a passage about the certainty of the resurrection from the dead. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. It's about the certainty that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul is looking at objections that say Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. And he says, but hold on, even in broader society, we recognize that the idea of resurrection is actually a, a widespread hope, which you find out there. And so he cites how some people and some other faiths get baptized on behalf of the dead. And he says, well, what does that mean if no one can believe in a resurrection? So, so he's not saying you should do that. He's simply noting that there is a practice in society where people get baptized on behalf of the dead. And he's saying, so, so the idea of resurrection from the dead is not such a strange idea in society. No, no, that's a very different interpretation when you actually come to it. And it's nothing strange that Paul is saying. But it is about interpreting the obscure and the light of the clear and being confident that the clear dominates. We'll take another example. Uh, we need to make sure when we interpret a passage that we're not so much looking slavishly at the words of the passage and saying what we must do, but that we're actually digging a little deeper and saying what principle underlies this, the, this passage? Why is this passage saying this? For example... In that same uh, passage, which I was quoting earlier on, 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, uh, we be made in the image of God. It goes on and it says, be fruitful and multiply. Now that little verse, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, 28, has, and sometimes still is today, used as an argument against contraception. And people have said, you know, the Bible says you must be fruitful and multiply. So if you're married... And if you're in a sexual relationship, you should not use contraception because the Bible says you must be fruitful and multiply. And if you're using contraception, well, then presumably you're taking steps to not multiply too much. So there you go. And some people might even stand up and say, you know, I'm worried. This is a Christian group of people. You know, you would expect that you'd all have families of around a dozen or 15 children. Why not? Uh, you know, what's going on here? Because why are you not obeying what the Bible teaches you? No, 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 no. It's about hermeneutics. Everything's about hermeneutics in the end. So the passage does indeed say, be fruitful and multiply. In what context? In a world of how many people? Two people. 
And in that context of a world of two people, God's instruction is, you better multiply. I mean, there is a very big world to fill out there and be very fruitful and multiply. And in that world, you read that as have as many children as you possibly can. That is totally appropriate because why? the intent of God is that this would be a planet that flourishes and that does well. Therefore, be fruitful and multiply. But when you come to a world with seven and a half billion people, you suddenly realize, oh, that's one of the commandments we have obeyed rather well. You, 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 you know, there, 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 there's a point in time where you actually say, slow down, slow down. Not that much obedience, thank you. And you need to say, what's the intent of this passage? And the intent of the passage is that the world would flourish. The intent of the passage is that the world would flourish. And so you say, that's the underlying principle that lies there. So humanity must always do those things that ensures that the world is a wonderful, flourishing place. Now, when you understand that that's the principle, then you realize that actually, perhaps to obey this passage, I must not be too fruitful. I mean, I must reproduce myself, that, that's fine, but I mustn't reproduce myself 20 times. I, you know, there's a limit to these things, because otherwise the world will not flourish. Do, do you see what I'm meaning when I'm saying, if you read that verse, just literally, those are what the word says, and, and you're not curious at all about the underlying principle you will land up disobeying the intent of the verse. But good hermeneutics always ask the question, why was this written? In what context was it written? By whom was it written? What's the underlying principle that's here? How does this translate now several thousand years later? And those principles are the things which remain with us forever. Well, you say, you know, Brian, this is sort of interesting. I'm not a professional theologian, thank you very much. Uh, you know, how, how do I go about reading the Bible? And, and I want to suggest that, that you should read the Bible, that you should read it often, that you should read it every day, that you should get to know it really well because God speaks to us through the Bible. But as you do, it helps to have a little bit of a guide. Uh, I don't know if any of you are into jigsaw puzzles. Uh, any jigsaw puzzles doers here? That's, that's, some of you are. And you know, it's helpful, isn't it, if you do a jigsaw puzzle, to know the picture that you're building up. It's really difficult if you've got your thousand pieces and you have no idea what picture you're trying to build. And sometimes when we read the Bible, it's a little bit like that. We've got these little pieces of these endless little clusters of verses. And we're trying to put them together, but we have no idea what the big picture actually is. Whereas if we have a good idea of what the big picture is then actually these smaller pieces, we say, ah, so that's where that fits in. Ah, so that's where that fits in. And, and it starts to make sense. So, so that is actually why I wrote this book, The, the, the Big Picture. And yeah, Peter was good enough to mention that you can purchase copies for $15 at the end. Not from me, because I'll be off at Forestdale, but from Rosemary or from Amy uh, at the back. And, and in this book, I look in a chapter and I suggest that, that to read the Bible well, there are 15 orienting passages. I call them the first 15. It's kind of my South African, New Zealand rugby background. It likes the idea of a first 15. And I suggest that if there are 15 passages of the Bible that you understand really well, they will help to orientate you to the whole of the Bible. And if you understand what those 15 are saying, then you're not going to get muddled with all the rest of them. No, no, no. Listen. Take a deep breath. I'm not going to go through all 15 now. It's not going to last that, that, that long, promise you. But, but, but let me give you just a little taster of five of them. So, so an orienting passage is a passage which comes to us, and it's almost like getting the snapshot 
of a jigsaw puzzle picture so you know how the whole thing is building up. And when we read scripture, I'm going to suggest that there, there are five, well, I suggest here 15, but I'm going to condense it way back to just five passages now, that if you understand these passages really well, you won't go too far astray. Passage number one, the one that I've already mentioned, that all humanity is made in the image of God. Now, I've already spoken about that, but that, that, that opening portrait that here as all human beings we've been made in the image of God must orientate all our understanding of the Bible. Whenever we think that perhaps God doesn't care for someone, if you ever think that God doesn't care for you, if you ever think that you don't matter, then remember that the affirmation of scriptures, you have been made a medjodeo in the image of God. You bear that alien dignity. And that, in fact, to be made in the image of God is not only somehow to be given that dignity, it's to be given a task. Because in the ancient world, if you were an image bearer, it meant that you bore the image of the king. And you, you bore, quite often it would have been a, a seal that, that, that bore, and the seal would show the image of the king. And as you carried it, you would be told, you'd be saying to people, I have the authority of the king behind me. I am doing what the king has told me to do. So to be an image bearer means not only that we have the worth of being made in the image of God, but we have the task of God to build a world where people genuinely flourish. And therefore what you and I do must matter because God has somehow said that we are always working on behalf of God in the world. That's a big thing. What other, other passages are there? Mark chapter 12, 28 to 33 uh, sometimes Scott McKnight, a great New Testament scholar, calls this the Jesus Creed. And it's one of those Orientine passages because it's the one that Jesus himself chose. He was asked one day, which of the laws is the greatest? Please, we, we, there's so many of them, 613 of them. How do we know which is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and that you love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. And the law and the prophets is all summed up in this. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a sure guide as you go through scripture. It's a sure guide as you go through life. If you ask yourselves this question, is what everything that I'm doing flowing from love for God is what everything that I'm doing flowing for love for the neighbor? If I want to know if I'm on the right path, I just ask these as little guiding lights. In what way is God honored through what I'm doing? In what way is the neighbor blessed through what I'm doing? And if my answer is God is not honored in what I'm doing, well, the answer is the neighbor is not blessed through what I'm doing, then why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? This is the greatest commandment. This is the creed of Jesus. And we should orientate ourselves in our reading of scriptures to that. Then there's Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8, wonderful, wonderful verse. And it, Paul says to us, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It, it's this reminder, forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is always possible. That, 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 that God sees us in our brokenness, in our fallenness, and dies for us. It is the message of grace that comes through one end of the, of the Bible right through to the end. And it means, very practically, that if you sit here today and you wonder, could God care for me? Could God forgive me? 
I mean, am I a person worthy of forgiveness? This is the message of the scriptures. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is one of the Bible's orienting passages. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Let me just take a drink quickly. One Corinthians thirteen thirteen, Paul gives his own summary of what really matters when he tells us there are some things that remain forever. Now three things, says Paul, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, says Paul, is love. Three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's a great orienting passage. I mean, if you think of the things that we do in life, how many of them are birthed by fear? I better do that because if I don't do that, then, oh, I might not have enough money or I might not have enough strength or I might not have enough prestige or, or whatever. We, we do things from fear. Sometimes we do things for revenge. I'm going to get back at that person. Who do they think they are? I will show them in some way. Sometimes we do things from insecurity. If I don't do that, people won't think very well of me. Thank you very much. We do things for all kinds of reasons. Paul says, do them because of faith. Do them because of hope. Do them because of love. Because if you do those things, those are the things of eternity. And if you do things because you're selfish, or you do things because you're fearful, or you do things because you're insecure, they will have their little day, but they will not last. The things that last forever, says Paul, are things that you birth from faith. What is God calling me to? It might be bigger than I can possibly imagine. It might feel almost overwhelming. God, how could I do that? But, but I'm drawn towards it. Somehow my ability to trust in Jesus pulls me there. And Paul says when you go on those journeys, those are journeys of eternity. Those things that are birthed from hope. You know, things could be better. Things don't have to be the way that they are. We could build a better world. If we go from there, says Paul, we will be doing those things that last forever. And says Paul, if they're birthed from love, that which is birthed from love lasts forever. It's an orienting passage. And, and you find that the message of the Bible, for all the stories sometimes of wars and disappointments and failures, somehow it always comes back to this theme. But in the end, there is forgiveness and there is faith, hope, and love, and that abides forever. First Orienton passage, and the last one I want us to look at today. Some things actually don't matter that much. Some things don't matter that much. Galatians 3.28. In that little verse, Paul says to us, In Christ, in Christ, in this new reality in which we find ourselves, because forgiveness is possible, because forgiveness is possible and we find ourselves in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And wow, that's a piece of dynamite. Because in that little verse, Paul simply says, all those big things that everyone else thinks are so important, your nationality, Jew or Greek, and how many wars have been about nationality? Paul says of no consequence, doesn't matter at all. Slave or free, your, your social status in society, what you've been able to achieve in Christ of no real consequence. 
your gender, male or female. This, this is the gender wars era. And Paul simply yawns and says, in Christ, really not that important. In Christ, really not that important. In Jesus, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, caught up in a much, 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 much more important reality about being in Jesus, because that's what lasts forever. And so as we go back and as we ask our own lives and we look at our own lives and what we do, we, we ask, you know, do we make sometimes too much of things that really do not matter, things that really do not matter? And so hermeneutics, this, how do we go about how do we go about interpreting the Bible? Have a little guide. Have a sense of those big picture passages that help to orientate us through all the stories that take place. But keep on reading the Bible. I mean, when, when we planned this, this series, I had one little fear, and I think the others on the team had this fear, that people would look, would hear it and think, oh, but doesn't that make Bible reading sound too hard? No, no, no. Let's... Let's read the Bible well, and let's read it with the absolute conviction. The conviction that the psalmist had in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to guide me and a light for my path. Your word is a lamp to guide me. It is a light for my path. And the Bible is that, day after day after day. Don't, don't get muddled by obscure little passages don't spend all your energy in obscure little passages. Remember the big picture. Remember that you're made in the image of God. Remember the Jesus creed. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that forgiveness is possible. Remember that faith, hope, and love remain forever. And remember that some things like nationality and social status and gender just don't matter all that much. But faith, hope, and love abide and remain forever. And that as you go on that journey of forever, you have a guide, which is a lamp for your feet, a light for your path. Let's pray together. And as we pray, maybe just think about your own reading of the Bible. Maybe you don't read this book very often. Maybe you should. Maybe just commit to God that you would read it and read it well. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without a guide. Thank you that your word is a light to us and a lamp for our pathway. Give us the courage to live in the light of its teaching. In your name, amen.